morning. Just thinking about that psalm, that song. Um, we can recognize uh, a few things. First, uh, Joey, I appreciate you bringing out for us that Father loves us too much, just always give us what we want in the moment. And he, He's working in ways that, that are for our good, that we cannot see or understand. And, and you know, we do have a spiritual enemy. Satan is opposed to the church. And no matter what else might be going on through, through the pandemic, we ex- experience and are experiencing, uh, I, I know it was not a good thing in many ways for us to not be able to gather for several months. That, 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 is, that is definitely a, a plan of the enemy to try to undermine uh, the work of the gospel, yet God works it for good. God turns Satan's schemes upside down and advances the gospel anyways. And we can praise God for our confidence that we can have in him. Now let's pray before we open his word together. Father, we, we thank you for the time of worship we've had, the time to uh, remember who you are, to confess our sins to you, to exult in the forgiveness and hope of the gospel, and, and yes, to lament before you, um, to to cry out to you why, to bring our pains and struggles to you and, and have you minister uh, your, your, your comfort and confidence to us, Lord. We thank you. Now as we open your word, Father, we pray that you would speak to us. We believe that the Bible is your inspired word. We believe that, that when it is read and taught that you speak to your people. We believe your spirit is with us now um, in each one of us helping us to understand and to apply your word. And we pray that we would be receptive to what you have to say to us today, Lord. We pray that we would grow. We pray that we would be changed. We pray that your word would do the work for which you send it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we are in part two of, uh, of a, a kind of a two-week part of this series in Ephesians on, on, on walking in unity. We looked at walking in unity last week, and we're in the same passage this week, walk in unity part two. And as we think about unity, unity is not particularly hard to find in the world. Unity is not that hard to find in the world. Think, think about it. Entire cities unite and cheering on their teams. If any of you saw the Last Dance documentary recently, you see the entire city of Chicago united really in cheering on not just the Bulls, but, but one person on the Bulls, Michael Jordan. The entire cities unite over things like that. Millions of people unite behind their political leader of choice. Companies across the nation have workers that literally unionize. That is, they, they, they come together in unity to seek better working conditions. Unity is not hard to find in the world. The world can achieve unity, a sort of, a sort of unity, and, and that means that if the world can do that, then it's also possible that, that the church, they can also achieve, we can also achieve a, a kind of unity as well, not necessarily a biblical unity. You see, not all unity that we see in the church is biblical unity. What sorts of things might churches tend to unify around? Think about it. Tr- tr- trivial worship style preferences. If you've ever looked for a church, probably the, one of the things you're looking for is what kind of music do they sing? What's the vibe of the service, right? What, what, what's the experience like? These things don't actually matter, but, but, but people tend to unify around this when they are choosing a church. When everyone that, that wants the same worship experience. Or maybe it's Debatable cultural convictions. 
You know, you know things that, that Christians can disagree on, things that are, are not black and white, areas where our conscience might lead us in different ways, but, but what do we do? We tend to unify toward a church where everyone agrees with us on that particular cultural conviction. You see churches that um, have many homeschooling families and churches that have many public school families, but not many that we see that combined together. Why is that? We're, we're, we're unifying around a, a cultural conviction. Or peripheral theological positions. Now, I don't, mean, I don't mean primary theological positions. I don't mean the gospel itself or things that are of first importance, but peripheral things. Things like um, the, the, whether it's a, a literal seven-day creation or a, an old age theory. Things that, that yes, they're important matters. Um, the, the, these things are important, but they're not the gospel. Uh, the, 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 the timing of the rapture and the millennium, these things are not the gospel, yet you have churches that congregate and, and come together based on these things more than on the gospel itself and divide over these things. Maybe it's competing societal causes. You, you, you've got ch- churches that tend to unify over, over their societal cause of choice. So you've got a church that talks about uh, abortion a lot. The church talks about racism a lot. The church talks about sex trafficking, and, and, and you're going to go to the church that, that meets your particular societal societal cause. I'm sorry, societal cause. And maybe the maybe the most um, prominent one is people unify around various life and family stages, right? Where where I want to be in a church with with people like me. So I'm single. I want to be with singles. I'm a young married, I want to be with young marrieds. I'm an old married, I want to be an old married. I have kids in children's ministry, I want a good children's ministry. Kids in youth group, I want to go to youth group. You've got churches that unify over this, over, over people that are like me in the same stage of life as me. This is unity, right? I mean, you can, you can look at a church that's united on any one of these things and say, yeah, they're united. But the problem with this is that it's not really any different than the unity you find in the world. It's just a unity that makes plain sense. It's, it's, it's man-made unity. It's easy unity. But that kind of unity does not put the glorious wisdom of God on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That kind of unity does not convince unbelievers that God sent his son into the world. No unbeliever looks at a church where everyone likes the music and everyone's the same stage of life and everyone's just has the same beliefs and convictions about the peripheral things and, and says, wow, how, how are they unified? No, of course they're unified. They, they're all the same. It's not the kind of unity that so transcends all other distinctions that it points to a supernatural work of God. How can people from different cultural backgrounds, people from a variety of walks of life, Old and young, rich and poor, families, married, singles, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, public schoolers, private schoolers, homeschoolers, people who eat at Whole Foods and people who eat at fast foods, five-point Calvinists and four-point Calvinists, whatever other distinction you might bring in, how can we have unity? The answer is not by making much of any one of these points of distinction. It's not by trying to manufacture anything. It's not by trying to manufacture an experience or a vibe or, or a ministry for every kind of person. No, the answer is by finding our unity in the realities of the gospel itself. The answer is by majoring in on the gospel itself, saying this is what we're about, this is what we're unified in. What matters is not someone else's background or preferences or ethnicity or stage of life. What matters is are you unified in the realities of the gospel with me? 
Listen, this, I say this is the big idea for this sermon today. There's, there's no category of distinction in this world that can divide a church that finds its unity in the gospel. There's no category of distinction in this world that can divide a church that is finding its unity in the realities of the gospel. The gospel alone transcends all distinctions in this world. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Today's text is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Like I said, it's, it's the second half of a text that we looked at last week that is really on walking in unity. Last week we saw the, the primary call of verses 1 through 3 was, was to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. The, the Spirit has brought us unity, and we're to maintain it by how we relate to each other with humility, gentleness, patience, love, eagerness. This is how we cultivate and maintain our unity. So Paul moves from this call to maintain unity and how to do it to, to now talking about uh, important reminders of what our unity is actually in. He, he, he wants to just, just put the weight of the kind of unity we really have on us this morning. So in our passage this morning, Paul is going to give seven gospel realities that we must find our unity in if we're going to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. That, that is the continued call, walk in unity, maintain the unity of the Spirit. But if we're going to do that, we want to be a real unity, a biblical unity, and we want to, we want to unify around, around the gospel and not around things that just make sense to the world. And so seven gospel realities that we must unify around. Let's read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at these realities together. Verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven gospel realities we must unify around. First, there is one body. Reality number one, there is one body. In this verse, Paul is teaching the doctrine of the universal church. The universal church. Now, now let's think about this. There are literally I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches in the world. Local churches, congregations of people, and, there, and there's, there's countless denominations, there's, there's all varieties of churches, but there is only one true church. There's only one true church. It's the universal church, and what this church is, it is the people who have placed their faith in Christ from all times and all places. That's who's part of the universal church. The universal church is the people who will stand before God on Judgment Day and because of their justification in Christ, enter into the new heavens and the new earth with him. The universal church is the people of God from all time, cultures, and places. And Paul's reminding us of that. He's saying there is one body. There's not multiple churches. There's not, there's not the Baptist church and the Presbyterian church and and the non-denominational church, there's not all these other separate local churches, there's, there's, there's one body. You might ask, well, why do we have local churches then? Why can't we just be the body? Why can't we just all be Christians that know we're Christians and be the body all together? Why do we have local churches? 
But think about it. He's, he's writing this to a local church. He's writing this to a local congregation. He's, he's saying there's one body, and he's calling them to unity. Why? Because local churches give visible manifestation to that invisible church. So the universal church is an invisible church. No one can actually see the, the, the church as a whole when, it, when, it's, when it's just scattered all around the world, but, but local assemblies of believers give visible manifestation to that reality. People can see in the local church that there is a church. And, and Paul, though he could say there's one body of the universal church, he also says to local churches, you are the body of Christ. See, the local church is not even just a part of the body, though, though in a sense it is. Obviously, we're part of the universal church, but each local church is the body of Christ in that place. It is the manifestation, the visible public manifestation of the church. And, and here's what this means as we think about unity, as we think about rallying around these gospel realities. Is, is, as, as we come together as a local body of believers, what we are doing is we are, we are manifesting, we are displaying the unity of God's people from all time and places. That, that, that should excite us to realize that when we are unified, we are putting on display the reality of the universal church, the reality of the people of God from all times and places. We are each members of this body, and we get to represent that here in a local body. And so one gospel reality we must unify around is that, is that there is one body, there is the church, and we get to represent that as a local church. I'm going to keep moving because there's seven of these today. So there is one spirit. The second reality is there is one spirit. Now, Paul's talked about the body, and that leads him to the spirit because the spirit is the one who unites us as the body. The spirit is the one who incorporates us into the body. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is the one who gives life to God's creation. He was there in Genesis giving life to what God has made, and he, he gives life to us. He regenerates our hearts, and, and then he, he dwells inside of us, and he leads us, he guides us, he speaks to us, he convicts us, he transforms us. This is the Holy Spirit, and here's the thing. If you're a believer in Christ, we are, we are each indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Each one of us has God himself in the Spirit living in us. This is a gospel reality about us, church. We get to experience God with us. No one else in the world gets to experience that. This is our unit. We share in the amazing reality that the Spirit is in us. And the Spirit is working in us. And the Spirit's leading us and guiding us. This, this, this should create unity between us. This is our unity, is that we, we are spiritually united together by the Spirit, and He is actively working in our lives and hearts. We can see it in, in one another. And so we unify around the reality that we are the Spirit's people. We are indwelt by the Spirit. And when we come together, that, that individual dwelling in each of our hearts, it, it, it takes manifestation as, as a temple of living stones coming together where the Spirit dwells with us corporately. There's one spirit. We are each indwelt by him. It's one body. There's one spirit. And then he says there's one hope. There's one hope. I feel like I was a Christian for some time before I began to meditate on the hope of the gospel. But do you realize, if you're a believer in Christ, that you are called to a hope? He says, he says there's, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. People who come to Christ, people who are called to Christ, we're not called to different things. We're not called to different hopes. We don't have different destinations. 
We are all headed the same direction. We are all hoping in the same thing. What is that? What is the blessed hope, as Paul calls it in the book of Titus? What is it? It's the appearing of Christ. Our blessed hope is that Jesus is coming again. And that, and that this world will be transformed into a new heavens and new earth. That, that psalm that we prayed where the psalmist prays, bring wickedness to an end, that's going to happen on that day. And God's people will be, will be brought into his kingdom forever and ever. We'll have glorified bodies in a glorified creation, beholding the glory of God forever and ever. This, this is our hope. This is all of our hope in Christ. This, this, this is what our confidence is in. This is, this is why we are Christians. This is why we are believers, because we have put our hope in Christ, and this is the confident expectation that we have. Now, I think that if we all fixed our eyes on this hope, we'd have so much more unity together, knowing that this is where we're headed, this is the goal, this is what's going to happen, but what do we do? We fix our eyes on lesser hopes in this world. We make life about lesser things. We make life about about stability and careers and, and family success. We don't make life about the hope of the gospel. Even, even church, we make church about, about just growth and numbers and ministries. We don't, we don't keep our eyes fixed on the hope that we have, that Christ is returning, that he's going to transform all things, make everything new. We'll be with him forever this is the hope we need to fix our eyes on. This is the reality we must unify around us that we are all headed toward that day. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. One Lord. This Lord is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was with God before creation, has always existed, took on flesh became a man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is coming back. He is our Lord. He is who we follow. He is who we worship. He is our Savior. We are His disciples. But you know, since at least since 1 Corinthians was written, Christians have tended to take their eyes off their one Lord and put their eyes on another man. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow, follow Apollos, I follow Calvin, I follow Luther, I follow Piper, I follow Chandler, whatever it might be, but we, we tend to fix our eyes on, on these human leaders and take our eyes off Christ and divide because we follow someone besides Christ. But, but we need to remember all these men, as I said, they're, they're all just servants of Christ, we're following him, he is, he is our Lord, He's, we are disciples of him. And so, th this is what we unify around, is that, is that we are His disciples. He is our Savior and Lord, and we are all following Him together. There is one Lord. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, if a whole church is fixing their eyes on Jesus, you know that church is going to be unified, going in the same direction. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. One faith. In the New Testament, faith is both a subjective and an objective thing. So, so faith might refer to my personal faith, my personal belief, my personal trust. But then there's also the objective faith. What am I believing in? What am I trusting in? What, what is the content of that faith? And, and here, Paul is speaking of that second reality, the, the faith, the, the, the content of our faith as Christians. What is the faith? 
Well, Ron, you read it earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. This is the faith in its essence. The, the person and work of Christ, the good news of salvation from sin in Jesus Christ. Later in the book of Jude, Jude calls the church to defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because here's what happens is people come in and they try to distort the faith. They try to change the faith, try to introduce new ideas to the faith. But if you lose the faith, then we lose the gospel. So he says, defend the faith. And so throughout church history, what have we had? Have, we, have, we have all these creeds and confessions in church history. What are these creeds and confessions? They're not the scriptures. They're not authoritative like the scriptures are. But what are they? They are, they are defenses of the faith. The, the creeds and confessions were not just people that got together and said, let's write a creed. Let's, I'm bored today. Let's write a creed. No, there were heretics trying to destroy the faith. And these people came together and said, we need to look at the scriptures and clarify and defend what is the faith. And we stand in a stream. Redeemer, we are not the originators of the faith. We have received the faith passed down to us through history from the scriptures and from the church. We receive this faith and we stand in this faith because there is only one faith. There's only one true Christianity. Anything that deviates from this faith is not true. It's not, there's not multiple versions of it. You know, the, the sad thing is that we often divide over secondary doctrines. We often divide from other believers, from other people who actually believe the faith over secondary matters. Really, we should unite in faith with them. You, you ce- celebrate, celebrate the, the growth of gospel preaching, gospel believing local churches because we share one faith. And, to, and, and together we have one faith. The, the, this is what binds us together, church. We, we, are, we are people who believe the same thing. We, we believe the same thing. And that's why we're a church. We, we have come together in the faith. This is what should unite us. And we defend that faith and we grow in that faith. And we live in that faith. Next it says there's one baptism, which is related to the faith because baptism is the, the sign of those who receive this faith. Now, it might be humorous for us to think about baptism in a discussion on unity, right? I mean, baptism is not the most unifying topic in Christianity, is it? I don't think when Paul wrote this that there was arguments at that point in time between infant baptism and believer's baptism, and so... so we might think, Paul, you didn't know what was coming. But, but no, the reality is, even for those who disagree in the application of baptism, we do agree on the reality that there is one baptism. There's only one baptism. There's, there's, not, there's not multiple baptisms. And what Paul's referring to is not just the external act of baptizing somebody, but he's talking about the inward reality of baptism. Baptism as a symbol symbolizes the inward reality that the Holy Spirit baptizes us through faith into the body of Christ. We are united to Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. We are cleansed from our sins. And, and baptism symbolizes all of this. This is, this is the one baptism that we have been incorporated into Christ, into His death, into His resurrection, into His body. And, and this happens through faith in our one Lord. But, but this is what we celebrate. There's, there's one baptism. We have all shared this baptism. 
we are unified in this baptism. And I pray for more baptism because every baptism is an opportunity for us to joyfully unite around the reality of the gospel. Whenever we see someone baptized, we are uniting around the fact that, that we believe in one Lord and we share one faith and we are one body. Every time we get baptized, someone, we get to do this. So we pray for more baptism. We celebrate baptism. It unifies us as a people. There's one baptism. And finally, he says, there's one God and Father. Just as there's one Spirit, just as there's one Lord, so there's also one God and Father. Paul describes God as the God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. It's really a majestic, sweeping description of who God is. It could be taken to refer to this God's relationship to his whole creation. He's over all, he's, he's, he's through it all, he's in it all. But, but specifically in this context, I, I really think that Paul is reminding the church that he is the father of us all. He's not just the father overall, but he's the father of, of believers. He is our father, he is over us. He's through us, he's in us, he, he's over us in his sovereign care of his children. He's, he's through us in his powerful work in our lives. He's in us by his personal presence that's with us. It's really a picture of the wonderful reality that it is to have God as our Father. Just, just, as we stop and we meditate and we think, God is your Father. And this is true of each one of us in Christ. We share the reality that God is our Father. He is your father and he is my father. We are his children, brothers and sisters. If we've been united together in the family of the God of creation, what distinction matters? Like what distinction could really matter if we are children of God together? If we're adopted into his family together? What could ever divide us? So we unite around these realities. We unite around the fact that, that we are one body and dwelt by one spirit sharing one hope, following one Lord, holding to one faith, partaking in one baptism, adopted by one Father. We unite in these gospel realities and not in peripheral things, not in, not in natural things. You know, I said seven, but there's actually an eighth reality in this passage. It's more implicit, but it's the reality that there is one Godhead. There's one Godhead. You notice Paul, Paul weaves into this passage of the Spirit, and the Son, and the Father, the Spirit, and the Lord, and the Father. He says there's, there's one Spirit, one Lord, one Father. These are the three persons of the Trinity. But what is the doctrine of the Trinity? It's that these three persons are one. One God. Three in one. You see, God himself is the ultimate example of unity. As the one who is three in one, he is the example of unity. And, and, and this is a mystery that we, we cannot comprehend we really do not know what, what does it mean that he is three in one, three persons, one God. But amazingly, at the same time, it is a mystery that we can reflect to an extent through our unity. Jesus prayed that just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, that they may be one, even as we are one. When we are unified, we reflect the unity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We worship the three-in-one God, and we get to display the glory of the three-in-one God by walking as his united people. So this is an eighth reality that I believe Paul is, is weaving into this passage, is that we worship the one God who is three-in-one. So there's a lot there, isn't there? There's all these gospel realities. Paul could probably have kept going. 
right? All, all these realities that are true in the gospel. And he's reminding us there's one of, one of each of these things. He's calling us to unity. He's calling us to walk in unity because there's, there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one God. And so be one church. Walk as one. How do we apply this, though? How do, how, how do we take this today? And, and, and what, what significance should this have on us this morning, church? Well, first, I just want to call us, each one of us together, to evaluate the kind of unity that we are cultivating here at Redeemer Church. What kind of unity do we have? What kind of unity are we cultivating? What kind of unity do we gravitate toward? Is it, is it easy, man-made unity, or is it gospel unity? Is it unity that has to do more with our natural commonalities? Or is it unity that has to do with supernatural realities? Let me put it a, maybe a different way, a more practical way. Would you consider changing churches if the style of our worship changed? Would you consider changing churches if all the families that are closest to you moved away? Would you consider changing churches if you disagreed with someone else in the church about a non-gospel issue? And these are reasons that people leave because they want to go to be with people that are more like them. But that's not the kind of unity we have. That's not the kind of unity we should have. We're unified in the realities of the gospel, not in natural commonalities. The only cause for disunity should be if the gospel itself is being denied in either word or in deed. Either through what's being preached or what's, what's, what's being practiced. If the gospel's being denied, then yes, let's disunify right now and leave. But we are united in the realities of the gospel. And so the call for us is, is to, to evaluate, are we doing that? Are we actually doing that? And to make the gospel the explicit reality we unify around. Not, not just implicit, not just that we each know in our own minds that we're here because of the gospel, but, but let's make it explicit. Let's make this the thing we talk about. Let's make this the, the thing we rally around. Let's, let, let's, let's be the body. Let's, let's ask, how is the Spirit working in your life? What is God doing? Let's, let's call each other to to celebrate the faith and, and celebrate baptism and to worship God. Let's, let's make these realities the thing that we're about. So when people come, they don't just see a unified people, but they see a people that are unified around the gospel. See, th those people are all about Christ. And church, I say this encouraged because I've heard these types of testimonies from you. From, 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 from people that have come for the first time and said that it seems like those people just talked about Jesus the whole time we were there heard that and so I'm encouraged let's just continue to watch ourselves and cultivate gospel unity so that's the first application evaluate the unity we're cultivating second let's lament the division that exists between gospel preaching churches and pray for more visible unity in local churches on Sunday mornings so again, I, I think an application is that we would lament the division that does exist between gospel-preaching churches and pray for more visible unity in the local church. The local church should be a manifestation of the universal church. It, it, it should look like what the universal church looks like to the degree that the community it's in allows. And you could broaden the ways in which, in which we see division between gospel-preaching churches, but but this morning and just this week, I've been especially drawn to think about just, just what I think is a tragic reality that Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour in our country. It's just the reality. Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour in our country. 
Now, the reasons for this have much to do with the history of racism in our country and, 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 and slavery, the history that, that, we, that we have inherited, and, and, and the cultural differences that have grown over time. I, I, I don't believe in many cases because predominantly black churches or predominantly white churches are racist in themselves. I don't think that. But I, but I think that over time we have inherited a situation that, that everyone has just grown accustomed to. But in light of what we're learning in Ephesians, we can say this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it should be. Think about, just imagine the context of Ephesians. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles. It, there seems to be an obvious struggle that, that they had, that, that, that Jewish believers were identifying primarily as Jewish. And Gentile believers were identifying primarily as Gentile. This was, this was such a part of their identity that they weren't finding unity together. He's calling them back to unity. He's saying, he's saying you are one new man. You, you are unified as one people. You're, it's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's, it's believer. It's church. And he's calling them to that unity, calling them to walk in that unity that God has accomplished for them. But can you imagine if, if the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers just said, let's just, yes, we're all believers, but we're, we're very different, and so let's just worship in our own churches. Let's have a Jewish congregation and a Gentile congregation. What do you think Paul would write to them? Would he say, okay, Jewish congregation, make sure you're maintaining unity. Gentile congregation, make sure you're maintaining unity. No, he would say, come together. He'd say, this is wrong. This is wrong that you have decided to worship separately because you are one. You know, our, our country is obviously hurting and looking for answers and looking for justice, in a sense. And I want to tread carefully because I don't want to get into anything that we can see as, as political waters at all this morning. But I just want to say this. What is, what is the church's role in this? I don't believe it's to transform the culture. The culture is going to be the culture. It, it, is, it, is, it is wicked, it is evil. We, we speak truth to the culture, but, but as we speak truth to the culture, the church should be a counterculture. The church should be the place where the culture looks and sees that they're unified. They, they, they love one another. They're together. How is that happening? But it's tragic because that's not what's happening on Sunday mornings. The, the culture cannot look at the church and see unity there. They see separation. And so all I'm doing this morning, church, is I'm pointing to the reality of that. I'm just pointing to the reality of it, and I'm saying it's tragic. It shouldn't be the case. I'm not saying why it's the case. I'm not trying to get into all those deals. I'm just saying it's, that's not how it should be. It's not best. And what is the way forward? At least the first step is lament over this and pray that God would, God would change it. Ask God to make our actual unity with other gospel-preaching churches more visible on Sunday mornings. Pray that he would bring about a more visible unity. The issues are not simple. The solution is not manufacturable. We cannot just manufacture a solution on our own. But this is why we should bring this before God and pray earnestly that he would bring about a more visible unity because it will display to the world will display that the gospel has a transforming power that they do not know. And so let's pray this for the glory of God and for the lost who would see this unity. Finally, 
Let's preach the gospel to all people. Let's preach the gospel to all people. Again, this type of unity is not something that we manufacture. It's not something that we, that we can just find, a, a, introduce a new ministry, or, 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 or it's, it's not something that we can just, just do on our own. It's something that we, we pray to God for, and then we preach the gospel, and we trust that the gospel will bear the fruit. So that the gospel will bring the fruit of this type of, of, of supernatural unity here. And so what it means is that as we pray, then we proactively pursue the lost. And we cross every conceivable line of distinction that this world might make to share the gospel with men and women that are created in the image of God. We call all sorts of people to the one Lord and to the one faith. And as they come to faith in him, we celebrate with them through the one baptism that we share. And we welcome them as members into one body. And we, we say we're each indwelt now by one spirit. We're each looking to our one hope. We're each adopted into one family of our God and Father. But we must preach the gospel to all people if we're going to see this kind of radical transformation and union take place. This, this is the fruit of the gospel. Only God can do it, and he will do it through the gospel. So let's pray, pray, pray that God will let the gospel go forward to all people, and then let's preach the gospel to those people. Then let's welcome these people into his body. I want to close just by reading the doxology at the end of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen.